0: And three two and one 2, <laughs> I had something in my hand I wasn't ready
1: to clap so quickly <laughs> Do you need me to clap again? No, oh, I dropped the ah uh, was me also dropping the thing <laughs> It was just like a pen But still, you can't clap with a pen in your hand <laughs> to Film Kids, Giant Squids, and Other Things That Think They're Deep. I'm Lindsay. And I'm Brooke. And this week we're talking about It's a Wonderful Life and Click. This is our holiday 2020 special episode.
0: Yep. We're ruining the holidays for you by talking about Click.
1: I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, how is It's a Wonderful Life ruining the holidays? (laughs) As a present, we're
0: giving you some drama that involves Timothy Shalloway. <laughs> Does the drama involve him? I don't even know. We're giving you drama and we're giving you Timothy Shalloway. <laughs> I was going to make an STD joke, but no one wants that gift. I did. That was that was in my head, too. <laughs> and I'm like, I can't. I'm, I'm, I'm not quick enough. My mind is a fog.
1: <laughs> you got the gist of the joke. There's a joke somewhere. Y'all can put it together yourself. Joke, some assembly required. <laughs> Just like how when you were a kid and like your toy, you opened it, needed batteries. This joke, it needs a punchline. You do the (laughs) work.
0: You're the batteries.
1: (laughs) So let's get into 127 Hours with a Film Kid. 127 Hours with a Film Kid. So basically, I just have a little bit of an update on the streaming wars. Oh. So first, Disney had its Investor Day where they just announced... Literally a million projects that are coming up, including 10 Star Wars shows, 10 Marvel shows, all of which will premiere within the next three years. They were kind of vague on timelines. What other Marvel shows? So the ones that were already announced were WandaVision, The Falcon and the Winter Soldier, Loki, Loki. And what if the other ones announced were Miss Marvel, Hawkeye, Moon Knight, She-Hulk, a Guardians of the Galaxy holiday special. So I guess that's not really a TV <laughs> show. That's just a special <laughs> secret invasion, Ironheart and Armor Wars.
0: I liked secret invasion because it implies that like there's very often very well known ahead of time invasions
1: in the Marvel universe. Yeah. Okay. That's fair. <laughs> But yeah, in addition to those 20 projects, which is already a lot, they also announced Chip and Dale Rescue Rangers, <laughs> which is a hybrid live-action animated film starring John Mulaney and Andy Sandberg as Chip and Dale, respectively. Uh- <laughs> I just was like, oh, that sounds delightfully fun. Sign me up, please. (laughs) I am very outspoken as being not a Star Wars kid or a Marvel kid, but I am a John John Mulaney kid. (laughs) kid. (laughs) Those are the three options. (laughs) (laughs) Meanwhile, fucking HBO Max drama. So if you haven't seen, Warner Brothers announced that all of their 2021 slate will be released simultaneously on hbo max like instead of being exclusive to theaters they're also going to release on hbo max like the day it comes out in theaters right yeah they announced this and then pretty much immediately there was drama because they did this without telling most of the filmmakers or talent involved so a bunch of people have spoken up obviously by bunch i mean like a bunch of the directors and the talent Mm -hmm. So Dune director, Janice Villanueva, he spoke out against it, again, citing that they did it without really talking to anyone. And he called it a betrayal towards cinema. Wow. He wrote that Warner Brothers' sudden reversal from being a legacy home for filmmakers to the new era of complete disregard draws a clear line for me. Filmmaking is a collaboration reliant on the mutual trust of teamwork and Warner Brothers has declared that they are no longer on the same team. Wow. Yeah.
0: I do love the drama. So what did they think was happening that, say, like, Dune, for example, was just going to be pushed to, say, like, a summer opening when movie theaters might be open?
1: Dune's release date is October 1st, 2021.
0: Oh, so, like, movie theaters
1: will possibly
0: be open.
1: Exactly. And they said all 2021 releases. Like, this wasn't just, oh, just for the first couple months until we figure out they... Warner Brothers was like, all 2021 releases will be on HBO Max. Villanueva goes on to stress that his film and many others were designed to be viewed in theaters. According to him, quote, Dune is by far the best movie I've ever made. My team and I devoted more than three years of our lives to make it a unique big screen experience. Our movie's image and sound were meticulously designed to be seen in theaters. I'm speaking on my own behalf, though I stand in solidarity with the 16 other filmmakers who now face the same fate. Please know I am with you and that together we are strong. The artists are the ones who create movies and series. So his statement, while critical of Warner Brothers, was still kind of this, like, positive statement. Like, it was very much like, filmmakers, we've worked hard for this. It was like Like, a let's
0: join together. Yeah, like,
1: and he, like, I didn't read the whole statement, but he talks about how... COVID has impacted the film industry and it's a completely different film industry, but streaming alone won't be able to sustain the film industry as we knew before COVID. His statement, like, took in the context of the times we were in. And then there's Chris Nolan. Now, Chris Nolan, I don't know if I've said it on the podcast. I like the films he makes. I hate him as a filmmaker. (laughs) He's such a pretentious piece of shit. And, like, not even, like, in a, like, oh, I'm an auteur filmmaker. He just makes bad choices. (laughs) (laughs) yeah. So he put out a statement shortly after this. Before I read the statement, I just want to say it was Tenet and how badly Tenet did in the United States that really pushed Warner Brothers into making this decision.
0: Ah, so it's Christopher Nolan's fault. Well, it's not his fault. It's COVID's fault,
1: but... Shh. Tenant domestic box office is just under fifty eight million. Compare that to his previous film Dunkirk, which had a fifty nine million opening weekend in America. Wow! Like it did not do well, and that's because theaters aren't open. The ones that are open are at limited capacity, and audiences were just not going to theaters right now. Like I know, if like the theaters that are open in L.A., I'm not going to. It was this kind of poor release that Warner Brothers was like, okay, we need to change what we're doing and that's why they decided to shift to a streaming model. So Chris Nolan's statement is just really blind to that. But anyway. Some of our industry's biggest filmmakers and most important movie stars went to bed the night before thinking they were working for the greatest movie studio and woke up to find out that they were working for the worst streaming service. Warner Brothers had an incredible machine for getting a filmmaker's work out everywhere, both in theaters and in the home, and they are dismantling it as we speak. They don't even understand what they're losing. Their decision makes no economic sense, and even the most casual Wall Street investor can see the difference between disruption and dysfunction.
0: I wasn't sure if I lost you. Uh, Warner Brothers isn't trying to disrupt anything. I'm just gonna... I don't think that was their intent.
1: (laughs) Also, a bunch of actors have spoken up about how not great this is. And to understand why a lot of them are speaking out, you kind of have to understand how a lot of talent's contracts work. So basically, talent will, instead of taking a bigger upfront pay, will get some back-end payments. Mm -hmm. Which basically means the better the film does in the box office, the more money they'll get. So obviously, with films switching to streaming, they're not, gonna get as much of a back end bonus as they would have before. Again, a lot of these actors, Timothy Chalamet being a big one, who have spoken up about it, also cite them just not being told they found out when the press release came out. Oh, that's sad. So someone who has spoken up in favor of it is Gal Gadot, who stars in Wonder Woman and the upcoming Wonder Woman 1984. Her exact quote was look, if you told me a year ago that that's going to be the case, I would flip out and be super angry, but the truth of the matter is, is we just didn't have any of better options. We felt like we were sitting on this movie for such a long time. We shot the movie in 2018. We started promoting it in 2019. We pushed the movie four times. We felt like the movie was so relevant to what's happening in the world right now that you come to a place at a certain time, you're like, okay, I just want people to watch the movie. That being said, Gal Gadot reportedly has received a $10 million bonus because of this. Wow. Yeah. So of course she's not upset. <laughs> like she's she got $10 million.
0: <laughs> if Zendaya doesn't get everything she deserves I'm gonna riot (laughs) I don't really care about Timothy Chalamet but I need Zendaya to get everything out of Dune that she possibly could have
1: (laughs) the DGA which is the director's guild also spoke out against this decision saying quote we intend to take appropriate actions to protect the rights and interests of our members and request an immediate meeting to discuss the matter
0: it's just wild to me that like they wouldn't get a say but like I guess the rights lie in warner brothers
1: yeah so much is the case with streaming it's really the wild west of filmmaking there's not a lot of hmm. regulations films and tv series that are traditionally aired they have strict regulations because of things like this that happened when filmmaking first started and so now we're seeing this happen with streaming that there's comes into these situations that we would never encountered before we've never encountered a studio deciding all these theatrical releases, no, they're just going to be streaming. Like, we've never seen that. So there's no regulations as to they can't do that because no one's tried it before.
0: Yeah. Oy.
1: The funniest thing was, like, the day after Chris Nolan just fucking ragged on Warner <laughs> Brothers. <laughs> clearly some Warner Brothers executive got mad about that and like leaked to the press that like the notes for Tenet the initial notes were just like hey man the dialogue in this like opening bit you can't understand it like the sound mixing is terrible and Chris Nolan responded that's an artistic choice no it's not <laughs> <laughs>
0: My artistic choice is to be bad.
1: Yeah, like, especially for a movie like Tenet, which is already hard to understand the concept. My artistic choice is that all of the technical things about the movie are going to
0: be confusing to match the tone.
1: (laughs) I'm going to make it purposely hard to understand because that's what the character's emotionally going through. He's confused, so you have to be confused. <laughs> that's all I have for 127 hours of the film kit. If you find yourself at home flipping through HBO Max, just know a bunch of filmmakers and film kids are upset about it.
0: Oh, and go see movies in person if and when you can. Yeah. In addition to just watching these on HBO. Do it friends and Zendaya.
1: If Tenant goes on HBO Max, just watch it there. Yeah. <laughs> It's a Wonderful Life. My shitty tweet summary is an angel in training takes his final exam in this science fiction film. Ooh.
0: Mine is man who never leaves his hometown substitutes a religious fever dream for therapy when he has an existential crisis.
1: Beautiful. I love it. Thank you. It was directed by Frank Capra, written by Frank Capra and Francis Goodrick and Albert Hackett with additional scenes by Joe Swirling and was released December of 1946. Now, be warned, this is probably my longest Film Kid lecture to date. So it's two back to back long Film Kid lectures. I'm sorry. Merry Christmas. You're getting Film Kid lectures. <laughs> so first, let's talk about Frank Capra. So Frank was an Italian-American filmmaker. In the 30s, he really rose to success as his national figure, the films he was making were both commercial and critical successes. This includes It Happened One Night, Mr. Deeds Goes to Town and You Can't Take It With You, and In the 30s he received three Academy Awards for Best Directing. So kind of everything was coming up Capra. However, Capra started struggling with his success at this time because with the success came money and this lavish lifestyle, and he was struggling with the idea that he was now the successful person, but still telling these stories about people who weren't successful, like the underdogs and the downtrodden becoming the heroes. So he was already kind of struggling with this idea that he was living... Contrastly to the stories that he was telling, and then Pearl Harbor happened. So less than a week after Pearl Harbor, Capra quits his job directing films in Hollywood and goes to Washington. He enlists a major in the army, and then through World War II, oversees the development and production of war propaganda films. I did
0: not know any of this.
1: (laughs) Most notably, (laughs) he creates a series of seven documentary films called Why We Fight. If this subject interests you, I highly recommend there's a documentary series on Netflix called five came back which is about five prominent directors who left hollywood to join the war in various ways and how they impacted the war and then how they came back to hollywood and the war impacted them is it all world war ii yeah or like- it's five world war ii directors and like one of the directors was at d-day filming it another director he was filming a lot of the concentration camps so he was like getting the first images out to people oh my god the like concept of that is crazy to me yeah like, i get
0: that like these are documented but like by journalists usually yeah
1: so they used a lot of filmmakers and it is really good it's also voiced by Meryl Streep so like you can't go wrong (laughs) so then after World War II ended Capra returns to Hollywood and he was just fully ready to put the war behind him and get back into filmmaking but there was a couple things happening first he didn't necessarily want to rejoin Hollywood as he left it mainly the studio system basically Hollywood at this time was run instead of treating filmmakers or actors writers as independents the studios treated them like employees so they would be contracted to work at a studio for a certain number of pictures over a certain number of years and this meant ultimately that the studio heads would get final creative control over what you were doing. So Capra wasn't interested in that at all. So together with William Wyler and George Stevens who were two other directors who had also been in the war with him, they create Liberty Films, a production company with the mission statement to give filmmakers freedom from the Hollywood studio system. The second thing that was happening at this time is he had put his career on hold while he was in the war, but when he got back he found that Hollywood hadn't put its self on hold during that time, and he was no longer this prominent figure, and people had really kind of forgotten about him. Oh. So he was the underdog yet again. Yeah. So Liberty Films had a distribution deal with RKO, which was one of the big five studios at the time, for a total of nine films, or three films from the three directors that made it up. The first film mm-hmm. that Liberty Films decides to produce is It's a Wonderful Life. It's a Wonderful Life is based on the short story The Greatest Gift by Philip Van Doren Stern. Basically, this guy had tried to get the story published, but... When he found that publishers weren't really interested in it, he instead had it printed up and sent out as his Christmas card that year.
0: (laughs) I love that. (laughs) (laughs) You're not going to listen to my podcast. I'm sending you the entire transcript Merry
1: Christmas. (laughs) RKO bought the rights to the story years before Liberty Films got involved and they were developing it in-house with the mind that Cary Grant, who was an RKO actor, to star. They commissioned three drafts, one by Dalton Trumbo, one by Clifford Odets, and one by Mark Connolly. And those drafts were wildly different than the version that we see. In one draft, George Bailey is a politician who slowly grows more cynical and then he tries to commit suicide after losing an election. The angel then shows him Bedford Falls Not if he had never been born, but if he'd just been a businessman instead.
0: (laughs) Interesting.
1: RKO's chief then showed Capra the short story, and Capra fell in love with it and bought the rights from RKO. He then worked with writers Francis Goodrick and Albert Hackett, Joe Swirling, Michael Wilson, and Dorothy Parker on many, many, many more drafts. It was not a harmonious collaboration. Goodrick called Capra, quote, that horrid man. (laughs) And her husband, Albert Hackett, said, quote, We were getting near the end, and word came that Capra wanted to know how soon we'd be finished. So my wife said, we're finished right now. We quickly wrote out that last scene. We never saw him again after that. He's a very arrogant son of a bitch. Oh, my God. So now let's talk about Jimmy Stewart, who plays George. Capra always had in mind Jimmy Stewart to play George. They had worked together previously on Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. Stewart, too, had been in the war, but instead of contributing to the documentation effort, he was a fighter pilot. So he came back from the war, what was known as flack-happy, but that's now pretty much understood to be PTSD. Who called PTSD (laughs) flack-happy? Like, what the fuck? Yeah, who knows? Mental health wasn't great in the 40s.
0: Clearly. Anyway. The (laughs) last
1: two years of the war, he said the only things that he was eating and then could keep down was peanut butter and ice cream. Oh. And it was only when, like, he started filming this that he was actually starting to put on weight again and, like, starting to eat real food. Another thing, his hearing was also damaged because he, again, was a fighter pilot. His hearing was damaged. He didn't lose it completely, but he, it was hard for him to hear the cues and sometimes hear other actors' lines. Oh, So, like Capra, he came back from the war and found that Hollywood had moved on without him. He found that they were younger, more fit, and less flack-happy men who could take the parts that he wanted or he would have gone up for.
0: But also, in the words of John Oliver, probably not as hot and enormous.
1: (laughs) I'm not mad at you for that. (laughs) I don't like it, but I'm not mad. But he was strongly considering just giving up acting, returning to his hometown, and running his father's store when he got a call from wow. his agent that Capper wanted to meet. So he was just himself. So, Stuart pretty publicly had said that any role that he would do after he got back from the war was going to be a comedy because the world had just seen too much darkness and suffering. So, when Capra and him sit down, and Capra's like, oh, I've got a great role for you and only you can do it, and it's also about a guy who wants to commit suicide. Stuart apparently just got up and walked out of the meeting. It was only when his agent told him that he had no other parts and no other options that he agreed to the role. Production of the movie wasn't entirely smooth either. So the film had an original budget of $2 million, but the entire budget was spent before the film wrapped. The spending became such a concern that George Stevens, who was one of the partners at Liberty, when he saw how much it cost the production to produce fake snow, remarked, quote, well, why the hell couldn't be in springtime?
0: Because <laughs> then it wouldn't be a Christmas movie for like the 30 minutes that it was Christmas. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I'll get to that. Donna Reed, who plays Mary, is one of the eyewitnesses who spoke publicly about Capra's and Stewart's insecurities on set and said that, quote, this was not a happy set. Oh, no. So Capra and Stewart on set were just very tense they were very insecure. They no longer felt that they could stand behind what they're doing. And apparently, they would go off and huddle and say, should we try this? Should we try that? And it would proceed that way for months. Specifically for Stewart, while he was making the film, he was questioning just if it was even worthwhile to be an actor. Lionel Barrymore, who plays Mr. Potter, said to him, apparently, quote, so you're saying it's more worthwhile to drop bombs on people than to entertain them? And apparently, that was the moment that Stewart turned himself around and was like, oh, okay, like acting does have a purpose there's a reason I'm doing this, and he kind of bought into the film at that point. First,
0: just, oh God. Second, so he was just literally George Bailey.
1: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Like, so much of Jimmy Stewart was put into his betrayal of George. Yeah. So the original release date was supposed to be in January 1947. RKO decided to move up the film to December, in part because the studio just didn't have a Christmas release. But secondly, they wanted to make the 1946 Academy Awards deadline instead of having to wait an entire year. However, this meant that it was released just one week after William Wyler's film, The Best Years of Our Lives. The Best Years of Our Lives was a drama about three soldiers returning home and attempting to return to civilian life. It was the highest grossing film of that year and then at the Academy Awards won seven Oscars. In comparison, It's a Wonderful Life was a box office flop. It made just a little over $3 million dollars against its nearly four million dollar budget and at the Academy Awards the only thing it won was a technical award ironically for the fake snow that Stevens wanted not <laughs> include. Critically it wasn't trashed but it just wasn't praised. Most critics agreed that Stewart does a good job in it and overall it's a fine film but it just felt a little too sentimental and some critics said that it was too long. It was just kind of seen <laughs> as a middle-of-the-road film and was quickly forgotten about. Liberty Films had borrowed against the film, taking a risk on Capra's vision, and they went bankrupt because of it, and was sold oh to Paramount. God. And that's kind of where the film was left. Twenty-eight years later, in nineteen seventy-four, is a secret cult
0: classic. Yep, yep. <laughs>
1: The copyright for the film expired and the copyright owner just forgot to renew it. So the film entered public domain. This meant that TV stations could play the movie without paying any royalties and TV stations trying to save a few bucks thought, cool, this is free. Christmas-related content, will just keep airing this. So they would play the movie over and over, and 1974 audiences weren't turned off by this overly sentimental tale, and they enjoyed the nostalgia of the film. Capra Aww. gave an interview to the Wall Street Journal in which he said, quote, It's the damnedest thing I've ever seen. The film has a life of its own now, and I can look at it like I had nothing to do with it. I'm like a parent whose kid grows up to be president. I'm proud, but it's the kid who did the work. I didn't even think of it as a Christmas story when I first ran across it. I just like the idea. Then, in 1993, a Supreme Court ruling allowed for the copyright holder to regain ownership of the film as they still had their rights to both the short story and the score for the film. They then turned around and sold the exclusive rights to air the movie to NBC. And this cemented the film in Christmas tradition as people who were used to being able to just watch this movie whenever they wanted during Christmas time suddenly had to plan out exactly when NBC was showing it and then it became an event. And that is why the film is a success. When, When it came out, it was very much not. Both Capra and Stuart have said that this project was their favorite they've ever worked on. A lot of critics now say that It's a Wonderful Life is the culmination of all of Capra's previous projects.
0: As someone that's watched this like every single year of my life, I feel bamboozled. (laughs) Good. NBC really, really shaped my childhood. (laughs) Same with copyright law.
1: (laughs) copyright law man it'll it'll get you oh my god in ways that you don't even know (laughs) so now let's get into the movie finally so the movie opens with countless people praying for George and it reaches the angels. So they discuss who they're going to send down and we learned it's Clarence's turn. And Clarence, who's got the IQ of a rabbit, but the faith of a child.
0: Somewhere out there, there's like a parallel universe version of this movie, but as click where it's like all of the angels of death gathered together trying to convince Mr. Potter to keep being shitty.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: I wouldn't watch it. But it exists in a parallel universe.
1: They then show Clarence, who hasn't earned his wings yet, George's life and how he ultimately gets to the bridge where he's contemplating suicide. We start off with him as a child and he and all the boys are sledding down the hill on shovels and his brother Harry falls into the lake. George saves his life but damages his ear. He then shows up to work at the pharmacy where Mary is sitting at the counter and Violet comes in, like, tries to flirt with George, but George could not care at all. George then talks to Mary and he calls her brainless And he's like, I'm going to have at least three or four wives. And he like leans (laughs) down and Mary whispers into his ear that he can't hear out of that she's going to love him till he dies. If someone
0: called me brainless and then saturates my fucking ice cream with something that I said that I didn't like and then calls me an idiot, I would not like them yeah, for 15 more then years. Yeah, would be like,
1: I'm going to love you till I die. No, sir. <laughs> That'd be it. I'd be like, Crush, you done. ruined the ice cream I'm paying for. George then sees the telegram that his boss's son has died and he goes in the back to talk to Mr. Gower, but... Mr. Gower sends him off with a prescription that he has filled and George notices that Mr. Gower has filled the pills with poison and then has this moral quandary over that. It's like, should I deliver this? Dude, no! Like, you don't need to go ask anyone. Do I allow murder? Like, just be like, oh cool, this is murder. Not gonna do it. But apparently George does need to ask someone. So he runs to his dad's office at the building and loan, and sees Mr. Potter talking to his dad and Mr. Potter wants his money and calls George's father a failure. George gets back to the store and Mr. Gower begins beating him for not delivering the medicine. Fun fact, it's not fun, but the actor playing Mr. Gower actually did strike the young boy playing George. And that's oh my God. real blood coming out of his ear. Were there just like not laws back then? Apparently not. So then we cut to later in George's life. George is buying a suitcase as he's planning on traveling. The clerk tells him that his boss, Mr. Gower, had already bought him a suitcase that he wanted. So then he's strolling through town and sees Bert the cop and Ernie the cab driver. Fun fact. Huh. Bert and Ernie from Sesame Street are not. Based on this Bert and Ernie, but enough people believed that they were, that in the 1996 (laughs) holiday special Elmo Saves Christmas, Bert and Ernie walk by a TV set, which is playing It's a Wonderful Life, and the pair are surprised by the line, Bert, Ernie, what's the matter with you two guys? You were here on my wedding night. Oh. <laughs> so in town George sees Violet who's all dressed up. Then he heads home and has dinner and his dad tells him that Mr. Potter came by again and asks if George would consider coming back to the building and loan. And George says he just couldn't face being cooped up for the rest of his life in an office and he says he wants to do something big and important and we learn that he's gonna take a trip and then go to college and his brother Harry who's just graduated high school will work for four years so that George could go to college.
0: He also wants to go to be an architect. This is click, but click happens in the
1: bad place. <laughs> yeah. George goes to Harry's graduation party. Or everyone's like straight up 30. Like <laughs> It's fine. Everyone is so old. Everyone just ages quick and Bedford falls, okay? <laughs> George saves Mary from an annoying guy and George and Mary dance. Annoying kid then decides to open the pool beneath the gym floor. Which, like, why is that button just open?
0: Like, why can anyone touch it?
1: There, there's a key. There's some safety. Yeah. <laughs> In high school, we used to tell people when they'd ask us where the pool was, because I was 15, we'd be like, oh, it's underneath the gym floor. And they'd be like, oh, okay. <laughs> they just believe that? I don't know. They've all seen us a wonderful life. <laughs> The pool opens, George and Mary just don't notice everyone screaming, and they're like, ah, they're cheering.
0: They notice everyone screaming. They're like, it's for us.
1: (laughs) (laughs) They both fall into the pool and don't stop dancing. They're like, ah, what a weird turn of events. Let's keep dancing. And then more people jump into the pool after them. Then George walks Mary home. So they reach the house that Mary loves, but George hates, and he throws a rock at one of the windows to get a wish, and wishes basically to be literally anywhere from Bedford Falls and anywhere besides with Mary. He wishes
0: for literally everything. Yeah. Like, you can't wish for that, but you get one wish. He, and he's like, no, I didn't just wish for
1: one thing. I wish for everything. It's not how that it's works, like, yeah, George. That's why it doesn't come true. <laughs> Mary then throws her rock, which, fun fact, Capra had hired a marksman to be able to shoot out the window when she threw the rock but to literally everyone's surprise besides donna donna hit the window on the first take and then she was like what i play softball
0: <laughs> good fuck you frank <laughs> <laughs>
1: Mary doesn't tell George what she wished, and then her neighbor then says, why don't you kiss her instead of talking her to death? And Mary turns to run away, but George is standing on her robe, and so she loses it, which, I don't know how you fully lose a robe. I can understand it coming open, (laughs) but, like, to fully lose it is a lot, but Mary, okay. She's like,
0: I need to go. I need to get out of here.
1: (laughs) She then hides in the bush and demands that he gives her back her robe. He stands there contemplating what to do. George loves a moral quandary, but before he can do anything, a car appears and he learns that his father has had a stroke. Then we cut to months later. George has given up his trip after his father died, but is about to go off to college. And he and his Uncle Billy sit in the board meeting with the board of Mr. Potter. Mr. Potter wants to take back the building. Uh, Uncle Billy and George don't want that. They want the board to decide a successor. And George kind of stands up to Mr. Potter and gives them a real talking to. George then leaves the room and is about to walk out to go to college but then is told that the only way that they can keep the building is if he stays on. He decides to stay on and give his college money to Harry and then four years later he's looking to leave again now that Harry is coming back and Harry gets off the train with Ruth, his wife, and at the train station she reveals that her father offered Harry a job and Harry immediately tells George that oh he's gonna turn it down. Like he's gonna come work at Building and Loans so that George can go off.
0: Um, imagine coming back from college with a with wife a, with a or a yeah, husband <laughs> and your entire family being okay with it
1: yeah <laughs> like they have no
0: questions they're just like oh, oh yes. she's cute congrats <laughs> yeah i just thought like oh
1: why wasn't i at the wedding
0: <laughs> or just like who the fuck is this
1: <laughs> so yeah at the house uncle billy and george talk out on the porch and uncle billy is very drunk george kind of sends him off And Uncle Billy knocks something over and then says, I'm all right. I'm all right. Fun fact, it was actually a PA genuinely knocking something over on set. And the actor who plays Uncle Billy just (laughs) ad-libs it, which Frank Capra, I I can't remember the exact quote, but he called it his like million dollar mess up. He was like, that PA deserved a raise. (laughs) George's mother comes out and tells him that he ought to call on Mary now that she's back from college but he goes the opposite way from Mary's house and runs into Violet and then suggests that they walk barefoot in the grass and go up to Mount Bedford and suddenly a crowd of people around him just all <laughs> laugh at him. <laughs> he then goes for a walk and walks by Mary's house and Mary calls out to him and is just like, well, your mother said you were coming over, so aren't you going to, like, come over? And he's just like, what? Uh, what? What? <laughs> She constantly
0: is like, I didn't tell anyone I was coming here. I wasn't even coming here. I don't even know why. Okay. If my only interactions with someone were they're telling me that I'm brainless because I don't like coconut, giving me coconut anyway, harassing me in a bush, and, like, being rude about the fact that they, like, wanted to come to my house... I don't know why you still want to marry
1: him. (laughs) The 40s were a wild time. George comes into the house, but doesn't want anything from Mary. He doesn't even want to be in Bedford Falls, and he goes to leave. And Mary shatters the record, which is just like a bold choice. I like her energy. (laughs) And she answers the phone, and it's Sam Wainwright, who I hate just because of the whole, hee-haw. (laughs) Then she calls out to George. And is like, don't you want to talk to Sam? And so George comes back and the two of them listen in on the one receiver as Sam tells George about the factory and his new job. In
0: plastics, because all these movies are about jobs in plastics. Though this is sustainable plastics made out of like... Soybean. Beans, yeah. Yeah. For some reason. But
1: But all these jobs are like, I got a proposal for you, man. It's plastics. plastics. (laughs) Uh, George and Mary could genuinely not care less about Sam wainwright in this moment (laughs) jimmy stewart was extremely anxious about this scene he wasn't sure if he could still play this leading man type and like obviously he was dealing with ptsd and like wasn't healthy at this time because again he was eating peanut butter and ice cream for two years yeah and capra decided that this nervous anxious energy was the exact right vibe for george So he did not let Stuart and Reed rehearse this scene at all. Oh my god. (laughs) And the take in the movie is the first take. Wow that's bold. Yeah so George tells Mary that he doesn't want to marry and then we cut to George and Mary's wedding. They get into a cab to go to their honeymoon and before they can leave they see that there's a run at the bank and Mary begs them not to stop but George then heads to the building alone. He sees the gates on the building and opens it and goes inside and Uncle Billy says the bank called in the loan and he handed over all the cash he had but it wasn't enough so he got worried and closed the doors. Mr. Potter calls and says that he's taken over the bank now and is willing to guarantee George's people. George turns him down and Mr. Potter says that if they close their doors before 6 p.m. they'll never open them again. George and Mary end up using their honeymoon fund to keep the building and loan open. Fun fact, the woman who asked for 1750, originally it was scripted and as they rehearsed it it was just for 17 but then when they're about to roll the cameras capra told them hey actually ask for 1750 that seems more natural and then stewart was just taken off guard by that and just reacted instinctively kissing her which is the take they <laughs> used in the film so much of this movie it just seems like capra's like this guy's on yeah, edge whatever. i'm gonna set him off <laughs> oh god <laughs> <laughs> Capra seems um, did like Did work with Capra
0: again after this? I don't think they did. Okay.
1: Because I was gonna say if that were my work environment I'd be like um no sir. Yeah so they managed to make it to 6pm with just remaining, but George realizes that he has forgotten his wife, arrives at the old, broken-down house, and Mary and Bert and Ernie have attempted to decorate it to create their own little honeymoon. Then the next scene, George helps the Martini family move into their new house. We see Mr. Potter kind of going over the numbers and learning that George has been building many houses. People that used to pay him rent now own their own Bailey house. Blasphemy. (laughs) Mr. Potter invites George to his office and says, I want to hire you, George, and offers him 20k a year for three years. How
0: much money was that back then?
1: It is now worth $289,000. Oh my God. Well, I would sell my soul for two hundred dollars year, but George is a better man than I am and turns him down. So then George goes home and learns that Mary is pregnant. Then the war happens and the movie kind of details all the townspeople's involvement in the war and the fact that George has to stay home because of his ear.
0: Did they ever buy the house or are they just squatting in it? Because like they gave all their money to the town. So they just find that house and decide to live there. I mean,
1: yeah. Who's going to stop them? No one lives there. Who owns that house? Nobody.
0: I mean, I, I guess the government. So like Potter. He's not the government, but he might as well be. <laughs> like
1: there's one there's one
0: guy that owns my hometown. And like if there was a beautiful empty house that people just decided to live in, like he'd sure as hell kill them. <laughs> They're going to go with stop. But no, just straight up murder. Stop is different interpretations.
1: At the end of the war, Harry is a hero and is planning on making his homecoming soon. We learned that Harry and George's mother had lunch with the president's wife.
0: I'd love to con my way into having lunch with Jill Biden. Yeah, for sure. Give me four years I could possibly con my way into a lunch.
1: A one-on-one lunch? Because, like, a luncheon does not
0: count. Okay, so, like, I can apply for administration jobs. (laughs) And then, like, (laughs) fake an emergency. The emergency is lunch? With the dogs. (laughs) No, the emergency is trapping Jill Biden in a room, and then I pull out a picnic basket. I'm just saying, if I really, really put all my energy into it, I think I could get that emergency. It would be a lot.
1: Oh, I would be arrested. Yeah, it wouldn't be a full lunch. No. At the building and loan, the bank examiner is in the office going over the books. Uncle Billy goes to the bank to make a deposit and sees Mr. Potter. And he's like, "Ah, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to rub this in your face that one of the Bailey men have done great things. Uncle Billy gives the envelope to Mr. Potter accidentally, and Mr. Potter gets back to his office and realizes what happened and then says nothing. Billy gets back to his office and George is in his office talking to Violet and gives her some cash so she can leave Bedford and go to New York. Okay, Uncle Billy also, like, he has a crow as a pet. Yeah, the crow is, like, a thing for Capra. He has it in several movies. It started with You Can't Take It With You and then was in every Capra film after it.
0: (laughs) Is the it that you can't take with you the crow?
1: No, because you can take that with you. Oh, it's a raven, not a crow. My bad. It's Jimmy the raven.
0: Aw, like Jimmy Stewart.
1: (laughs) Yeah. He appeared in more than 1,000 feature films. Oh, my God. His human co-stars are complimentary of the bird. When they call Jimmy, we both answer, remarked Jimmy Stewart on the set of (laughs) It's a Wonderful Life, noting that the Raven is, quote, the smartest actor on the set. Oh, my God. (laughs) George talks to Billy and learns of the missing $8,000. So he and Billy work to retrace Billy's steps. But somehow Billy's conversation with Mr. Potter just doesn't come up. Like, that would be my first... like oh yeah like here's where i showed down mr potter you did what you talked to mr potter
0: (laughs) did you talk to any of the sketchiest people in the town like the
1: the one guy who's desperately after all money in town you talked to that guy and your money went missing
0: (laughs) which he just keeps it at the end right He found the modern day equivalent of
1: $115,000 in cash. Can you fucking imagine? No. I can't even imagine finding $8,000, Lindsay, (laughs) in today's money. George goes home and sees Mary and the kids decorating the tree and begins yelling at his family. He also berates Zuzu's teacher on the phone. And he continues berating his family and just knocks over and destroys his architecture stuff. This moment is especially powerful when considering Stewart struggles with PTSD. Like this moment where Mary and his kids look at him like he's a stranger was a very real moment mm-hmm. that a lot of families were going through at this time. So yes, this is a sentimental oh. tale, but there are these very real kind of undercurrents of how the war affected people so George storms out and Mary tells her children to pray for George. George then goes to Mr. Potter and begs for help and Mr. Potter just straight up refuses him and instead is like well since you're here I'm gonna get a warrant for your arrest. George goes to Martini's bar Which, great name for a guy to open up a bar if your name is Martini. That's what you had to do. There'd be no other jobs. So George prays and then pretty much immediately gets punched by Zuzu's teacher's husband. George then drives drunk and crashes his car into a tree. The man whose tree it is comes out and is like, you need to get your car and go. And I'm like, sir, he just crashed it drunk. I don't think he should get this car and go. Like... (laughs) So then George walks to the bridge and is contemplating jumping. But before he can, Clarence goes in first and George dives in after him to save his life. He and Clarence talk, and George says that he just wishes he'd never been born at all. And Clarence is just like, Now you said it. That I can work (laughs) with. Suddenly, George can hear out of his bad ear, and his lip is no longer bleeding, and his clothes are dry. They then go to where George crashed his car, and it's not there, and the tree is no longer damaged. Then they go to Marchini's and it's no longer owned by Marchini it's owned by Nick who was a bartender so Nick really got screwed by George being around I'm just gonna say
0: <laughs> Nick stepped up yeah this like life. if George wasn't
1: around he would have been a business owner just gonna say that <laughs> the cash registers bell rings and Clarence is like oh, that means an angel's got its wing and the bartender is like you said what and kicks them out
0: the Salvation Army donation season must fucking slap for angels
1: <laughs> <laughs> you get a wing you get a wing everyone gets wings <laughs> <laughs> like there's too many wings not enough angels <laughs> every angel now has three pairs of wings <laughs> Before George and Clarence leave, Mr. Gower comes into the bar as a panhandler and gets thrown out. George is like, what are you doing? Like, I know that guy. He's just like, of course you know that guy. Like, you're probably a jailbird too because he spent 20 years in jail for poisoning a kid. Then outside of the bar, George looks through his pockets for identification papers. and can't find it and can't find the petals that he's stuck in. From Zeus's flower. And he's stuck in his teeny
0: tiny front pocket that I don't think has a use. genuinely, what is the
1: use for that pocket besides (laughs) petals from your daughter's flower? Clarence then reminds him that this is a chance to see what life could have been without him. George walks back into town and sees that it is Pottersville. He sees Violet get arrested. He gets into Ernie's cab and is like, drive me home. And Ernie's like, cool man, Where? And he's like, "Don't you know 320 Sycamore, whatever the address is?" And he's just like, "320 Sycamore is this guy?" And she's like, "All right, okay, sorry, yep, going." And then he gets to the home and sees that it is dilapidated. That he and Mary never fixed it up. He goes into the house still because. They could just be playing a prank on him. What else is he going to do? And (laughs) he calls out to his family and obviously they don't answer. And then Bert comes in, attempts to take George out, but Clarence bites him and is like, run, George. I'm like, okay.
0: I love that. He also says that he's bats, which I love. (laughs) And it also kind of implies that they're a vampire, which I love more.
1: (laughs) But yeah, Clarence just straight up disappears, which like that would be the point where I'm like, I'm done. Signing off my shift. No more.
0: I like that Bert and Ernie's friendship surpassed the need for George. He didn't bring them together. They were
1: (laughs) together before George and without George. That's fair. George goes to his mother's home and his mother doesn't recognize him and reveals that Uncle Billy has been in the asylum since he lost the business. Then George runs out and gives the camera the craziest look. There's a moment of <laughs> click as well where it like for just a brief moment becomes like a horror film. And this is it in this movie. And then the moment with the angel of death thing where he's just like, you thought I was good? I'm the angel of death. Yeah. I was like, all right, we were taking a genre shift. He then attempts to go find Martini because he figures martini just puts something in his drink and he'll fix this and he tries to go to bailey park but instead comes across the huge cemetery he finds harry's tomb because he wasn't there to save him when he was a boy which meant that harry didn't grow up to save anyone in the war george then demands to know where mary is and clarence tells her that she's an old maid now for why who knows it's like calm down she's like fucking like late 20s yeah (laughs) thriving as a librarian But yeah, she's about to close up the library, and George runs to the library, and because she didn't get married, she now has poor eyesight? I didn't (laughs) know how that translated. Maybe it was because George doesn't (laughs) like glasses, so therefore...
0: So she just just can't see all the time. (laughs)
1: She's like, it's fine. I don't need to see. I have a husband to see for me. (laughs) George, yet again, begins harassing her and just chases after her. And she begins screaming because I would too. And that doesn't (laughs) deter him. He just continues chasing after her. It doesn't really deter the people on the street
0: until like, like, I I feel like until like he grabs her. (laughs) Like, they're just like, this is fine. is fine.
1: Look at them having fun running for their lives. The police come and George starts screaming for Clarence. He punches Bert and then Bert begins shooting at him. <laughs> just like into a crowded street. Wildly. <laughs> hey, Lens, is this pro-cop propaganda? No, because they're not the heroes. George is the hero. But we love Bert and he's a cop. So therefore, this movie is telling us we should love cops. Except for when he shoots at a crowded street. That's...
0: The the only time he acts as a cop is when he just blindly <laughs> shoots yeah. his gun into a <laughs> That's crowded <fair>. street. <laughs>
1: So then George runs back to the bridge and he's begging for his life back and then Bert arrives and recognizes George and he hugs Bert and wishes him a Merry Christmas and runs off and he runs back through town and down Main Street and he's like, oh, building alone you beautiful old place. And then wishes Mr. Potter a Merry Christmas. Mr. Potter is like, you'll have one in jail. Ha ha. <laughs> he runs home and sees the bank examiner and the detective and the reporter they they're like hi George. He's like, hi, hey, am I gonna go to jail? Great. I love jail. Isn't jail great guys it's so great he runs up to his kids and hugs and kisses them and Zuzu runs out and Mary comes home and George frantically kisses her like aggressively kisses her <laughs> their entire relationship is like, aggressive From her perspective like her husband just screamed at her entire family destroyed things in her living room stormed out got drunk And now is home and trying to... Like, I would not want that kiss. I'd be like, sir, are you okay? Like, sit down, please. But Mary reveals with Uncle Billy that they've gotten all the money. And that all of his friends have donated money including Mr. Martini, Violet, Mr. Gower, Annie, and even Sam Wainwright. And the bank examiner starts counting the money, and Harry comes home. The bell on the tree rings, meaning Clarence has gotten his wings, and he gets the book that Clarence was reading and has the note, which is very similar to how Click has the note.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, but it's Zuzu that says, like, oh, when the bell rings an Angel gets its
1: wings. Like, how does she know that? She was like, my teacher said... Zuzu teacher is very smart, apparently. But
0: also, because c- in my mind, I was like, oh, maybe it's like folklore. That then I'm like, no, it can't be. Because everyone at the bar was like, what the fuck are you talking about, yeah. Clarence?
1: Unless they're like how like if something <laughs> like a grown man says something like... Oh, like Santa's coming tonight or like something like that. You'd be like, what the fuck are you talking about? So like it's a thing that like, kids believe that adults are like that stupid. Don't say that in my manly man bar. But yeah, the group then sings for Old Lang Syne. But yeah, that is It's a Wonderful Life. This is my mom's favorite movie
0: because she too was brought into the copyrightless era of watching it all the time. So we watch it every Christmas. And,
1: and now you can tell her some fun facts. My heart is.
0: I can't well she'll hear the fun facts and she she said that she'll be mad if I make fun of it, which I did, but I make fun of everything. That's my brain. (laughs) Click. My shitty tweet is a man who is an asshole is somehow surprised that when he doesn't try, he makes asshole decisions.
1: Mine is pretty similar. Mine is a horrible man learns that he needs to spend more time with his family and makes no other changes to his horrible personality.
0: (laughs) Click was directed by Frank Carassi. That's how I'm going to say his name. He's known for working with Adam Sandler. He also directed The Wedding Singer and Zookeeper, etc. And it was written by Steve Corrin and Mark O'Keefe. And it was produced by Adam Sandler.
1: Unrelated happy madison adam sandler's production company was based on the sony lot the golf carts that they had were the most tricked out golf carts i'd ever seen they were mercedes not branded golf carts
0: oh my but god like, that's a thing
1: apparently they were like super cushioned like snazzy colored like it was so and i had like the shitty sony owned like 10 years 20 years old cart that like oh it was so bad And they never freaking used them. They just sat out there. And I was like, I have to do runs all over this lot every day.
0: (laughs) Despite having mixed reviews from critics, it received a nomination for Best Makeup at the 79th Academy Awards, making this, until 2020, the only Adam Sandler film to be nominated for an Academy Award.
1: (laughs) It was up for an Oscar? What the fuck?
0: (laughs) (laughs) So the reviews of this are horrendous, as it should be. The Rotten Tomatoes one made me laugh. The critic consensus quote was, This latest Adam Sandler vehicle borrows shamelessly from It's a Wonderful Life and Back to the Future and fails to produce the necessary laughs that would forgive such imitation. (laughs) (laughs) I also found an article entitled, The Last Time I Cried Was Click and Other Dumb Things Boys Say on Dating Apps. So obviously I had to read it. It was written in 2018. It was on like some weird website. website i didn't know but i'm like is this an ad for click is this just like a blog i don't know but it was funny so i'm gonna read it (laughs) okay (laughs) This is when I began to notice a strange phenomena. It was the resurgence of Click into the zeitgeist, or at least into popular culture of young professional straight dudes. I don't know whether or not it is an ironic obsession, like how people wear vintage dare shirts, or if people actually like this movie. What I do know, though, is that a lot of people are watching the movie Click, or at least claiming to. A quick perusal of Google Trends will show you that searches for this movie are growing. The most popular region for this search is Connecticut, which makes sense. I don't care enough about this to give Click a second watch. I'm sure I will hate it. Click arrives on Netflix September 7th, so I guess watch it and see if you cry or don't. Either way, I'm swiping left. Yeah. <laughs> Which, again, I don't know what this is, but it made me laugh.
1: <laughs> I did not realize that there was a subsect of men that like this movie. It is so bad.
0: Opening scene pans to a messy apartment with, like, toddler stuff all over and a cute dog who they fucking killed... Three dogs within 17 years for no reason. With Adam Sandler, aka Michael, sleeping on the couch. The kids ask if they woke him up and Michael responds, how can I sleep with y'all here? Even though he's like sleeping in the living room and they're being as quiet as possible and the mom's trying to make breakfast. And he arguably is the distraction in the living room, but okay. Michael is upset that there's too many remotes and he doesn't know which one turns on the TV, even though he obviously doesn't have time to watch TV.
1: One, do you remember when universal remotes were like, a new thing. Yeah. It was like, oh, look at this technology. Like, like in eight. 2006. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> But two, I can understand like getting confused but like, oh, this is for the speaker, this is for the TV... But the garage clicker, there is one, maybe two buttons on it, and neither of them say power. Like, sir, if you were getting that confused, you deserve to not turn on
0: the TV. And also, why is that in your living room? Also, like, literally what he's doing is pressing every single button he could possibly see, being like, oh, this isn't the damn remote. Yeah. Like... They had blenders before 2006. Like, people didn't click them thinking it was the TV. Like, Michael goes to work at his architecture firm and gets offered the chance to design a building. And his boss is then annoyed when he says that he can't work because it's the 4th of July weekend. And he, he and his family are going camping and he has to leave on time to make his kids swim meet. But... When Michael is told that if you want the project, you have to do it. He's like, oh, OK, then fuck my family. Michael is late to the swim meet. They go to watch fireworks. Some teens keep setting off loud explosives and Michael tells them to stop and they tell him to watch VH1, Old Man, which is amazing. <laughs> That's the only joke that made me laugh in this movie.
1: Also, a running theme in this movie is Adam Sandler's character just like dissing Thinking his daughter's youth. hot. Like the next door neighbor kid We're supposed to cheer that he takes him down. Like, he's a small child. You're a grown <laughs> Am I man? supposed to be happy
0: that you ran over the toy of the child next door? Like, you're an adult. They go home. Michael tells his wife that he's not going on the camping trip that weekend because he has to work, which she's reasonably upset by. And then Michael gets mad that she's disappointed when all he's doing is working so that his family can have a better life. And then angrily tries to turn on an architecture documentary with, like, he grabs a. Well, in my mind was initially a gaming controller, and obviously not a TV remote, but it ends up being a drone, and it runs into his head, so he screams... the gods cursing them michael goes to bed bath and beyond to buy a universal remote he falls asleep on the display bed and then is tempted by the beyond section which is through a mysterious doorway
1: i will say this movie has ruined me so for whatever reason when this movie came out maybe like the next year it was just on tv constantly
0: (laughs) the anti it's a wonderful life
1: yeah (laughs) But this movie has ruined me because every time I see a bed, bath and beyond, I think of this moment where he goes to the (laughs) beyond. (laughs) It's going to happen to you too. You're going to go to a bed, bath and beyond and be like, oh, yes, where's the beyond? Yeah, it's
0: (laughs) effective marketing. Yeah, for real. But it leads him to the single man down a long hallway making gadgets. Michael, thinking this is still part of the store, asks for a universal remote. So they go to the way beyond section of the store to grab an oddly shaped remote. Morty, the guy making the gadgets, says there's no instructions or box and it's not logged in yet. So you can have it for free because, quote, good guys need a break.
1: Where's a good guy? Show me him.
0: (laughs) Show me the good guy that needs a break (laughs) and I'll give him one. But it's not.
1: Show me George Bailey. He's the good guy <laughs> that needs a break. Bailey really
0: is a good guy that needs a break.
1: <laughs> That's all he wanted his entire life was a break. Oh. Michael goes home, he pauses
0: his wife when he pauses the TV and doesn't even notice. Um and then his dog keeps barking, and he seems to know that it needs to go out to go to the bathroom, but he tells it to shut up and then like picks up the remote and turns the volume down, pointing it at the dog. But then it's shocked when it actually works. Yeah. So like, was this just a bit
1: that you were doing to be annoying with no one else around? So what were you trying to accomplish in that moment? Like you picked up the remote, pointed at your dog and hit the volume button. There's
0: also my problem with the remote. But like, how does pausing work?
1: I have no idea. My whole thing was when he's like, oh, I need to get this work done. I'm just to fast forward. I was like, well, I would just pause, get the work done and then unpause. Yeah. Like that seems like the much better solution. But he doesn't want to do the work. Yeah. That's the thing. It's like they make it out to be like, oh, he's choosing work over family. No. Like he's no, choosing he's choosing instant nothing. gratification over yeah. working for anything, including his relationships. But that was not the story that the movie told. Michael goes to Morty
0: and is like, okay, I'm being punked. Like that was good. Like you got me. Adam Sand dances for the camera and then morty joins in because he likes a good time and then morty tells him to hit the menu so they could see the menu of his life that james earl Jones narrates
1: okay this is the weirdest pet peeve but it bothers me (laughs) that the commentary track is narration when commentary is not narration when there's nine million things wrong about this movie it's such a weird thing to be like this is terrible i hate it but this is terrible i hate it (laughs)
0: But he's intrigued by the making up section, which is of his parents conceiving him and then brings him to the empty wasteland of his mom's vagina as he's being born. And then his masculinity is somehow insulted when they say that the baby version of him has a small penis. And then he goes back to his family camping trip when he's like, I don't know, like nine. And then he's disgusted by his parents kissing and his dad does like the quarter trick again. And then he goes back to the present. Next scene, his boss goes to the Hamptons for the week and demands that Michael works and Michael like sarcastically sets him up with his wife's friend that he hates and then when Michael goes home since they're skipping the family camping trip Donna his wife is like oh since the kids can't go camping like let we'll have like a sleepover for them and like we can invite your parents over for dinner which Michael's annoyed by but he finds out that he can skip entire chapters of his life so he skips the dinner with his family and then he skips the rest of the afternoon until his parents are leaving and then maybe. The worst sex joke in the world where he unprompted is more or less like, by the way, my penis is bigger than it was when I was a baby. And then his parents are like, it couldn't be smaller. It was like a Tic Tac. And Michael says, well, come here and I'll freshen your breath to his parents.
1: Yeah, this movie, it makes so many uncomfortable jokes the story the movie tells isn't that his personality is the problem. Is that his commitment to work over his family is the problem? Therefore, at the end, like, once he's figured out that he's a family man now, like, he still can make these jokes. And, like, we're still supposed to laugh at it. I'm like, no. This isn't funny. It was never funny.
0: Yeah. Donna comes down and asks if he can watch the kids for like literally 10 minutes so he can clean up and she can continue to watch them for like the rest of the night. And then he fast forwards her because he's an asshole. He calls Morty because he doesn't remember agreeing to go to lunch with his wife when she brings it up. Morty explains that it's his body gong on autopilot and he also says that his wife is hot and Michael says... I know, want to look at the girls that I used to date and chose two women who were slightly overweight and Morty says, what is this animal planet? Like, are you fucking kidding me? Yeah. Anyway, when he realizes he can fast forward now, he fast forwards through his... Cold that he develops, he fast forwards through his morning routine. And then he gets home and his kids ask if there's anything that they can do to help him, so he doesn't have to do so much work because they're cherubs and Michael's trash. But he says to come up with some house designs for him for when he's a partner. Next scene, Michael's going to a work meeting and discovers that he can change his skin color with the remote. So upon making him like green like the Hulk and purple and all this stuff, he gives himself a tan calls himself a Latino name to match the other racist jokes that a- her throughout this entire movie that I haven't mentioned but there's been a bunch so far and then goes to a sexual harassment seminar at his work which I was extremely worried about going into and turns out I was right to be worried cuz his yep. boss literally calls someone the office slut yep. and then describes sexual harassment if it's between two men as homosexual harassment and then Michael changes the language of like what he's hearing to be in Spanish and then just laughs at the concept of the meeting being in Spanish and then laughs at the sexual harassment meeting and also sees no repercussions. But Michael's boss tells him that he'll be the partner at the firm if he lands the next new big account. And they're at the meeting and Michael uses his remote to eavesdrop on their conversation and hear them say that the architecture plan is a bad ripoff of an Asian documentary, which is what it is. That's the documentary that Michael was watching earlier. And they just want to do Jell-O shots at TGI Fridays instead of being there, which same, I didn't even
1: know you could order Jell-O shots at a bar. I don't know about in 2007, but when I worked at TGI Fridays, you could not order Jell-O shots at a bar. Damn.
0: (laughs) Michael uses that to be like, let's scrap the plan. Let's do something that maximizes your profit. Let's go to TGI Fridays. So that gets him the account. So he assumes that it means that he's going to be a partner at his firm. So he buys bikes for his kids to celebrate. And Donna says that she knew it would be a good day because she heard their song on the radio. And not only does Michael not know what that song is, but he, he goes back to their first date and finds past him, giving Donna a note that says first kiss time. Yeah. Yeah. Next scene, Michael goes back to work, and his boss is like, oh, cool, you'll be partner once the plans are actually signed off, which Michael is pissed but asks Morty if he can fast-forward a couple of months until that happened, though Morty advises against fast-forwarding to chase a certain goal because you will miss the moments in your life. His kids come up with the plans that he asked for, and Ben drew a room which is made of pizza, and then Michael says that their plans suck, so his daughter gets upset reasonably because she made a room that was made of pickles and doesn't want her dad to insult it, which is also so good. Yeah, Donna's like, it's okay, we'll get through it. And then he asks why their whole life is just them getting through stuff. When will it end? Upon not wanting to hear the difficult work that Donna, not him, is doing of telling the kids that they need to return the bikes, he fast forwards until his promotion is over, which is a year later, he comes back and he and his wife are in therapy because he's been on autopilot, but it's actually because he's an asshole. Their golden retriever died and the kids are now too old to watch Dragon Tales. That's the single good thing I can say about this movie. I loved Dragon Tales <laughs> and it was a welcome return. <laughs> But now he can't control when he fast-forward. He tells Morty that the remote's broken. Morty says it's not. It remembers when he first fast-forwarded, which for a year is everything. So it's like you getting ready. It's you going to work. It's you complaining that you have to actually please your wife when you have sex with her. So Michael tries to destroy the remote, but he can't. So he changes his life habits so nothing will fast-forward, which includes not showering, wearing a bathrobe to work, and biking to work.
1: Look, he just turns green, Okay.
0: But Michael's boss says that he and Janine are moving to Morocco, so Michael is getting promoted to the position of the guy that's replacing Michael's boss's CEO. But since the boss said that At this rate, Michael will probably be CEO one day. The remote control's like, oh, cool, you want me to fast forward to that promotion? And then fast forwards 10 years to him being the CEO. Michael wakes up, is now overweight, and comes home to find that his son is Jonah Hill, and that his wife has a new boyfriend. In a fight with Donna about how he, quote, can't keep forgetting that we got divorced, Michael falls and hits his head, and then wakes up six years later to find that he had cancer and his remote just skipped through his sickness.
1: Also, just feel like they just like made him fat for the fat joke. Yeah. That was so unfunny.
0: And then they make so many jokes about it.
1: And then also they made Ben be overweight as well. Yeah. They
0: literally only had Jonah Hill in this movie to be like, haha, you're overweight. Ben now works at the architecture company, which is like extremely futurized and Michael's architect
1: of the year. I think it's at this one where it's 2017, and he lives in like the most ridiculous apartment building. He lives in like a pod. And I was like, oh, 2007. You had such <laughs> this high is the hopes. Past.
0: <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so Michael's in Ben's office, looking around, and he asks who the hot girl in the photo with Ben is. Is it Ben's girlfriend? And Ben's like, no, that's your daughter.
1: We know nothing about grown-up Sam's. Absolutely nothing, except for that she still cares about her dad. Like, we have no reason to believe that she's not smart, that she doesn't have a good thing going for her, that she's not, like, talented. And when he goes back in time and, like, wakes up and comes home, he, like, turns to his daughter, is like, I'm teaching you calculus tomorrow. I'm like, hot girls can't be smart, bro. Can only have boobs or brains, can't have both. I would have been
0: like, fuck you, dad. Like, you didn't talk to me for 16 years. <laughs> yeah, like, you're
1: a piece of shit who dis my pickle house.
0: Like, I'd visit him in the hospital, but I wouldn't, I would like, be not be there for 36 hours.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Like, I would do what Ben did and, like, show up once he's awake. Yeah. But Michael says, How about Sam
0: and Ben and Grandma and Grandpa go get ice cream or something? And Ben's like, Grandpa died, like, a while ago. But Michael goes to his grandfather's grave and tries to rewind to the moment that he died, which he can't because he wasn't there. So he goes to the last moment where they spoke, which he yells at his dad about the quarter trick like saying it's stupid and then his grandfather cries and then morty says sorry i didn't want to take him and michael says what and morty's like yeah i am an angel of death didn't you know that buddy
1: such a turn (laughs)
0: this is like the only plot line that i'm mildly interested in (laughs) i just want to know about morty just working in the beyond making weird gadgets for horrible people to like make them acknowledge that they're horrible people but like i don't think it worked in this movie yeah he
1: definitely would not get his wings for this one
0: (laughs) what is he even getting i guess he could still be getting wings
1: did you hear a bell in this movie i don't think so
0: so he, he fast forwards again and ends up at his son's wedding and the Cranberries song comes on. That was he and his wife's song from before. So Michael and Donna dance. Michael pants Donna's husband, who is for some reason wearing a Speedo. Samantha calls that guy dad and then michael has a heart attack and then wakes up in this hospital that's like a spaceship and it's like supposed to be 2021 ben says that instead of going on his honeymoon he canceled it because a work problem arose so he has to fly somewhere to fix it
1: ben seems way nicer let's just follow ben he seems like the george of this movie
0: I'd literally rather watch anyone else in this. Morty, give Ben a gadget, but he says that his wife understands. Michael runs out of the hospital and through the rain, trying to tell Ben not to be like him, not to cancel his honeymoon for a work deal. And then he falls and dramatically yells in the rain and tells them all that family comes first, even though, like, that was maybe, like, one of your, like, billion problems. And they all suddenly stop trying to get him help and then let him die in the parking lot in the rain. And Michael gives Donna a note From their first date. And it says will you still love me in the morning. And the angel of death takes him. And then Michael wakes up in the bed bath and beyond bed. Where he fell asleep to take a nap. He gets excited. He throws the bed bath and beyond employee onto the bed. He breaks into his parents house. And invites them to dinner. And then bangs all the pots and pans in the house. Just to yell at his wife. About how he changed his mind about the camping trip. He also brought home a bulldog. Without consulting
1: anyone. Yeah. This, to be fair, this is very George Bailey energy as well. Like, George Bailey would do this. (laughs) Yeah, but it would be wholesome. It wouldn't be bad. Also,
0: George Bailey would not then be like, let's role play as Native Americans and colonizers, which is what then immediately
1: happens post getting the bulldog. And again, the fact that there's multiple jokes about Donna getting turned on by the dog's humping a toy. Yeah. It wasn't funny the first time. It was less funny the second time.
0: Morty then gives him a new remote and says that he trusts Michael to do the right thing because, again, good guys need a break, even though Michael's a horrible guy. But Michael throws it out and then it doesn't reappear. And that's the end of this movie and the last time we're ever going to talk about it. Except we have to talk about which we
1: liked more. So.
0: Oh, okay. We have to talk about it one last time. <laughs>
1: Which movie did you like more? I can't imagine. Oh my God.
0: I I mean, like, It's a Wonderful Life has a special place in my heart. I am one of the people that watched it literally every single year. Even if I didn't like the movie and just, like, understood it as, like, a constant in my life that I'm just like, oh, this is just what I do, whether or not I have positive or negative feelings towards it, I would still like it more than Clint! But, like, (laughs) I love It's a Wonderful Life. It reminds me of, like, home and Christmas and my parents and being excited that it's December and snow, regardless of the movie. But I like it. Like the movie. <laughs> yeah.
1: My big problem with Click is that unlike It's a Wonderful Life where George, like he's a good person. He just doesn't realize that he has value, that he has done anything with his life. Michael isn't a good person. So like when he has that final moment where he's realizing it and be like, oh, I wish I could have d- done better. Like he still hasn't learned. He's also not realizing anything. Yeah. Like he isn't. Like, yeah, he needs to st- spend more time with his family, but he doesn't change his inherent personality. And, like,
0: all you're doing is spending more time with a family where then your daughter actively sees you constantly talking about her body and telling her that she's not smart. And your son sees you constantly just, like, treating, like, making horrible decisions like and choices and jokes Donna's and, like... Friend is
1: terrible. like yeah.
0: Like, if anything, they're probably going to get divorced faster now. Like,
1: yeah. No idea why she ever fell in love with this man. I would not. Both Donna and Mary were weird for falling in love with their husbands. But I do
0: love George Bailey. It's just what we saw was confusing.
1: (laughs) I think he was too shy around Mary and he took that out as aggression. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Like, I'm sure there was some off-screen tender moments. Yeah. Yeah. But, like, it would have been over for seven-year-old me when you forced me to eat all that coconut because I was stupid.
1: (laughs) Yeah, you call me brainless, I'm done with you.
0: (laughs) Regardless, I love It's a Wonderful Life, and Click made me sad on so many different levels. There's so
1: many things wrong with this movie. I hate it so much. I like It's a Wonderful Life. I didn't grow up with the movie. It definitely isn't, like, a standard Christmas thing in our house to watch it which is so
0: funny because every time i watch it i'm like i thought the christmas part was way earlier <laughs> and not just the yeah. last 30 minutes
1: <laughs> i think it's just like one of those things you always remember the angel bit you think oh yeah that's the whole movie but it's yeah. not it's so and like <laughs> and then you're that, like wow part there's of so the movie much movie is it. so frantic <laughs> because george is just truly losing his mind and to be fair i would too if suddenly no one i knew knew me like if my own mother was like who are you i'd be like i'm done (laughs) like get me to the bridge i'm jumping like what
0: jimmy stewart is frantic a lot of this but
1: (laughs) anyway that does it for this episode if you liked it share it with someone whose existence
0: has made your life better
1: oh that's so sweet (laughs) Or follow us on social media. We are at Film Squids Pod on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Or visit our website at FilmKidsGiantSquids.com. And have a happy holidays and we'll see you in the new year. Woo! Oh my god, 2020 is done. Yeah. <laughs> uh, now we have 2020 Part 2,
0: 2021. <laughs> the, the 20 and the.
1: <laughs> 21 that didn't that didn't <laughs> work for a fast and furious 2021 electric boogaloo Two <laughs> <laughs> twenty two one
0: <laughs> mad 2020 fury 2021 <laughs> i'm done now <laughs>
1: Film Kids Giant Squids is produced and hosted by Lindsay Buttle and Brooke copy Intro music is by the band Polly Action. Transition music is all length signed by TCJ. Editing by Brooke copy Until next time, kids!